I'll give them a hand as they're going down. Today we're going to continue on in 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. If you uh, have your Bible turned there with me, uh, probably going to slow down just a hair. Maybe just take the first three or four verses and just do them today. Let's pray together as you guys are flipping there. 1 John chapter 2, and we'll, uh, we'll ask God to bless our time together. Father, we love you, God. We come before you today. We just thank you. Thank you for being able to come into your presence. What an honor it is. What a, what a privilege that we can come, and we can come boldly because of uh, who you are, because of what you've done, because of uh, the sacrifice that you made for us, God, that you so loved us, Lord, even when we were unlovable, when we were your enemies, Lord, you came and you, uh, you, you sent your son, you died for us on the cross. We just ask, Father, that you would be with us today as we read your word, as we go and uh, as we just want to dig out everything that you've put in. We want you to uh, speak to our hearts today. We want you to, to, uh, to, to bless our time in such a way that uh, when we leave here, we know that the Spirit has done a work in our hearts as we, uh, as we look at your word and what you have for us. And we thank you for that. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've been talking in First John. We've been walking kind of just straight through the straight through the book, and we went through the last week. We got done with the first chapter, and uh, the good thing about walking through straight through like this is if if it happens to hit you between the eyes, it's not my fault. I'm just going from I'm going. What's next? So it, it's not all. It's uh, it's just there. So if it's there, we're going to read through it and we're going to talk about it. And so. And uh, just to give you a little background, to give you a little catch you up a little bit, John is writing to, uh, to the church, he's writing to believers, he's writing because there were some false believers, some false teachers that had come into the church and they were saying, no, 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 those aren't the real Christians, we're the real Christians. We're the ones that you need to be following, we're the ones that are teaching correctly, they had the, the special knowledge that uh, other people didn't have, and so they were saying, you know, we're the ones that are actual followers of Jesus, and John's coming and he's writing to distinguish between those that are not the true believers, the true teachers, uh, the true followers of Christ, and those who are. He's writing, he says it in chapter 5, and we'll get there eventually, hopefully, he says, it, you know, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing to give you assurance that you are a believer, that you know for a fact that you have eternal life and that nothing can separate you from the love of God and there is nothing that can hinder you, not sword or peril or, you know, all that that list in Romans 8. And so uh, he's writing to uh, make sure that you know, uh, you know, you need to know that you are a believer. You need to have that assurance. I got to tell you, even before we start, uh, before we start looking at 1 John chapter 2, uh, without that assurance, there's no growth. Without that assurance, there's no, uh, there's no peace. Uh, and God didn't give us a spirit of fear. So he, he wants you to know that you know that you know that you are one of his children. He don't want you wandering around thinking, well, I, I wonder if I am. I wonder if I'm not. That's not the spirit that God's given us. He's given us a spirit of power, of love, of sound mind. And so uh, John is writing these things for really two reasons, to distinguish and say, no, 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 those guys over there that are teaching different doctrines, that are living different ways, and he's going to give tests to show, he's going to say, those guys over there, they went out from among us because they were not of us. And if they were of us, they would have no doubt remained. And he's talking about remaining in the faith. And he says, I want you guys to know, I want you believers to know that you truly do know the son and that your assurance is found in him. And so the next, the next section, I, I probably am not going to get far 
But what he's going to do is he's going to he's going to tell us about the the sacrifice that Christ made for us. And he's going to he's going to show us some evidence that that sacrifice is applied to us. The last thing we read, if you were here last week, uh, the last thing that we read in uh, chapter one, the very end, he gave us uh, three little tests. And he said, if we say this, but if our life does this, then we're lying. We're not, we're not telling the truth. We're not walking the truth. He gave us three different things. He said, if you say that you walk in the light, if you say that you have fellowship with him, but you walk in the darkness, you're a liar. That's what it said in the last part of chapter one. We saw that. And then he, gave, he said, and if you say that you don't have sin, he says, then you're deceiving yourself. The truth, the truth ain't in you. And if you say that you have not sinned, then you make him a liar. So we, we looked at those last week. And so when you, when you think about that, I don't know if you went home and pondered on it. I sure hope that you did. But if you went home and pondered on those things, uh, it gives you a little bleak picture. We talked about the fact that it's really your lifestyle of sin. We're not talking about a single episode where, dang, you caught me in a sin and now I must not be saved. We're talking about a, a lifestyle that lives in, uh, out of sync with God's commands, out of sync with following Christ. Uh, a life that, you know, would say, you know, I am a Christian, you know, I don't really have to explain it to you. I know you see it all over the place. I, I'm a believer. I believe in Christ. And, you know, maybe I go to church on Sunday, but during the week, the people that know me out in the world, they really wouldn't know unless, unless I hung a sign around my neck or unless I went and to have a conversation with them, they really wouldn't know by my behavior, by my actions, by my, by my speech that I'm a believer. He's saying, he's saying that lifestyle of sin is, is not compatible with someone who says that I'm a Christian. And that's what he told us last time, three different places. If we say this, but we don't live this, then we're lying. If we say that we don't have sin, then we make him to be a liar. And if we say that we have not sinned, that we make him to be a liar. And so that would give you kind of a bleak picture like, well, who in the world, who in the world can stand? I mean, who in the world can be one of these Christians that you're talking about? And so in, in chapter two, let me just read, let me just read the first three verses. I'd like to get through six, but I'm not sure we're going to get that far today. He says, my little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Now, so we talked about we talked about walking in the light as he is in the light. We talked about that in the first verse. And so it's almost like a contradiction. It's not a contradiction, but it almost would seem that way to some people. So the last thing we read in chapter one was if any man says that he don't have sin, he lied. And if any man says that he hadn't sinned, he makes God a liar. And then the, the, the next thing you read here is my little children, I'm writing these things so that you don't sin. Well, wait a minute. I mean, the last thing we read, you might have, I hope you didn't, but you might have walked out of here going, well, we all sin. It's all good. You know, that's the big excuse today. That's the, we take those verses that say, you know, we're all dead in sin before we come to Christ and that no man has uh, done good in the eyes of the father and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We take those verses and, and we kind of make an excuse out of them. 
That's not what Paul meant by those verses. That's not what John meant by these verses. But we make an excuse and we say, you know what? When I sin, it's like, well, I done, I done stubbed my toe again. You know, I, I, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I, I want you to be honest. How many of y'all have ever used that? Don't raise your hand. How many of y'all have ever used that either as an excuse for yourself or an excuse for somebody else. You know, somebody's being convicted of the Holy Spirit and they're coming, maybe coming to you going, oh, I've messed up. I've messed up bad. I've done something so wrong and I, I just feel terrible. God's convicting me and, and, and you, you comforted them by using that verse. Now, come on now. Everybody's sin falls short of the glory of God. That verse is not meant to be a comfort. That's meant to terrify us. That everybody has sinned. And so he, John is saying, you cannot, you can't misinterpret his words. When he says, when he said in chapter one, uh, he said that uh, if any man says that he doesn't have sin, then he's a liar. And if he says that he hasn't sinned, he makes God a liar. You can't misinterpret those words and say, well, John's like, okay, come on now. It's all good. Everybody sins. It's all good. We don't have to worry about it. I mean, it, it, we, we don't have, sin's not that big a deal. Everybody's sin. Come on. You just join the club. We're all sinners. He, he's not going to give us that option because the very next verse in chapter two, he says, I'm writing these things so that you don't sin. I'm writing these things that you may not sin. He's, he's given us to a balance in the Christian life here that we need to make sure we understand. Uh, the balance is this, is that sin is inevitable. You, you will sin. I promise you have sinned. You are a sinner by nature. You know, the only thing that we have going for us is that we have a new nature, a Holy spirit that lives inside of us. But you are a sinner by nature. If the Holy Spirit, it's impossible. But if he were to leave you, you'd go right back to sin in the same way that you used to. It's the Holy Spirit that keeps us. It's the Holy Spirit that restrains that sin in us. It's the Holy Spirit that wars against that flesh that we have. And so he's saying, he's saying in the, in the part we read the other day, if you, you, sin is inevitable. If you say that you don't have no sin, then you're, you're a liar. And if you say you hadn't sinned, you make him to be a liar. So it's inevitable that you are a sinner, that you will sin and that you have sinned. But even though it's inevitable, it's never acceptable. He says, I'm not writing these things. So you can say, whoa, you know, we're all sinners. It's all good. We don't have to worry that to make sin acceptable is to go against the biblical record. Now, those are two hard truths when they come head to head with each other. So you're saying it's inevitable. I'm going to sin, but it's never acceptable ever. And so a lot of people take it and they, they lean too far to the left. They lean for, too far to the right. They say, like John said before, well, sin's not acceptable. Therefore, I, I haven't sinned. I, you know, and you'll justify your actions. We talked about that a little last week. You know, we'll, we'll say we'll do whatever. We'll do whatever gymnastics it takes to make sure that we can convince ourselves that I haven't sinned. It wasn't wrong what I did. And you go way too far off the left. You say, I haven't sinned. And you make God a liar, his word a liar. But then some people go way too far off to the left and say, well, you know what? We're all going to sin. So it's really just you, you just need to hang on and go on for the ride. It's all good. There's nothing we can do about it. You just got to go on. That's unacceptable. John says, little children, I'm writing this to you 
that you may not sin. I'm not giving you an excuse to say, because all have sinned, let me just go on out and do what I, what I need to do. He's saying, I, I, I'm writing so that you won't sin. I'm writing so that you understand that sin is never acceptable. And in this, in this passage, you see a hint of what we're going to see as we go further into, into 1 John. You're going to see the heart of the believer. It, it, it's, there's a balance in there that's struck by the Holy Spirit that says, I hate my sin and I don't want to sin. And I, I want to make sure that I, I live righteously before God. But there's something in me that, that's pulling me toward the flesh over and over again. And it's only the Holy Spirit inside of me that's warring against that. That's keeping me where I am. That's keeping me walking after Christ. That's providing that love for Christ in me that wants to please him. There's a balance. There's a balance that says I am a sinner by nature, but I have a new nature now. I have a new spirit inside of me. I have a heart that desires holiness. So to, uh, the Christian life is never one that accepts sin and says, you know what? It's just inevitable. We just all sin. That's what we're going to do. It's who we are. Let's just go on and eat, drink and be merry and, and don't worry about it. You may say a lot of people would say, well, it's wrong. We know it's wrong. But don't beat yourself up about it. It's all, you know, that that is not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is one that repents and mourns. You remember we read 1 John 1, 9 last time. If you confess your sin, we talked about that's a lifestyle of confessing sin. He's not talking about just kicking the rock down the road and going, oh, I messed up. Let me just let me just get it over. You know, now there's a balance in that as well. I'm not meaning you should be laying in the carpet crying for four days in a row and not going to work, not taking care of your family because, oh, I messed up up there we have the gospel and he's going to explain that to us as well but the first thing you need to see is he's writing these things not so that you will say well we all sin you know it's inevitable that we sin he says i'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin john's idea of a christian heart is one that is is uh it it doesn't there is zero percent sin that is acceptable in the christian heart the Holy Spirit will convict that heart of sin. Let me ask you, just before we move on, just how much is acceptable? I mean, how much, how much do you want to be sinless? I'm not, saying, I'm not saying it's possible to walk out of here today and not sin again for another five years or whatever. I'm not saying that. You still live in the flesh. You're going to war with the flesh every day. But what I'm saying is, how much does your heart desire to be sinless? Is 85% good enough for you? I mean, is it, is it, is it like, well, I want to be better than I am, but perfect is just pushing it a little too far. Following God perfectly, you know, as a desire of your heart, that's not really what I want. I want to be able to be 85% good and pleasing to God. And then I want to take that other percent and I I just want to be, you know, live the way I want to live. For John's, John's audience here, he's telling them, I'm writing these things to you so that there will be zero, zero percent sin. That is the heart of the believer. That is what our desire is, is to be absolutely pleasing to God. Are you making it? No, you're not making it. And we're going to see that as we read through these next two verses. We're going to talk about the gospel. We're going to talk about what he did for us. But the desire of your heart is to be sinless. 
That's the desire of your heart. And so often we take that truth that we read in the very last section of of chapter one that says, if you say that you hadn't sinned, then you're a liar and you make God a liar. We take that truth and we we say, well, if it's inevitable and, and nobody's without sin, then why am I so worried about it? You know, we're all going to be there together at the judgment. And, you know, God's I'm no worse than Joe next to me. I'm no worse than the guy down the street. And the reality is that you're not going to be judged in a big group. You know, if I put all y'all together in the middle of this room, I could hide pretty good behind y'all, even as even as large as I am. I could hide pretty good. You know, if you were looking out, if we scrunched all y'all together in one section and I was looking out over y'all, some of y'all could put your head behind somebody else's head and I wouldn't see you. You know, I, I'd probably I usually see them peeking out, you know, sometimes, but I could you could kind of hide like that. But we're not going to be judged in a big group like that. Mankind's not going to stand before God in a group and say, well, what about him? What about this guy next to me? I was better than him. You're going to stand all by your lonesome, all by yourself. And you're not going to have to answer for how good you were compared to Bill or how good you were compared to Johnny. You're going to have to answer for how good you were compared to Jesus. Good, good luck. Good luck without somebody to pay for that sin. Good luck for somebody what the, to good luck to stand without somebody to stand in for you. And so what he says is, I'm writing these things to you that you do not sin. You cannot. John is saying you cannot take my words and misinterpret them and say, well, it's OK. Everybody sins. You cannot take what I've written to you so far and say, well, you know what? It's not that big a deal and it's all good and we can just we can just go right along. It's fine. John saying that's not the reason I'm writing to you. I'm writing to you so that you do not sin. That's the desire of our heart is to be sinless. That's the desire of the heart that's been changed by the Holy Spirit. But we understand that we live in flesh and John understands that as well. And he says, and if any man sin, he said, look, we have an advocate with the father. Go back and look at I always I wondered why he said my little children, you know, in the first chapter is kind of hard. The second chapter is going to get a lot harder. And the third is going to be I mean, it's going to be downright offensive. But he's writing. You need to understand that even though he's given us hard truths to understand, he's saying, look, if you say that you're in the light and you walk in darkness, he, he's done called us a liar two or three times and he's going to continue to do so. So he's given us some hard things that we have to understand, giving us some hard truths. But you need to hear his heart. He's not just saying, hey, all you guys, who you know, y'all just a bunch of liars and blah, blah, blah. He actually cares for the people that he's writing for. He's actually writing for the benefit of the believer to give assurance. I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. He says he's calling them my little children saying, look, you just have to hear his heart. It's hard to take criticism from somebody who, who you know, don't love you. It's hard to take. It's hard to take uh, when someone comes and says, you know what, that's that that's a big sin. The first thing that we want to do is be defensive. The first thing we want to do is say, well, what about you? What about, you know, we, we don't want to look at our own self and, hey, I'm, I'm the world's worst. If you come to me and, you know, talk about eating cupcakes or something, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm probably get you back as quick as, as quick as possible. But John is writing these things out of a heart of love to say, look, there are people deceiving you. There are people who say that they're believers, that say that they're from the apostles, that say that they know the true Christ. And they don't. And they went out from uh, from among us because they were not of us. And you need to understand the difference. 
You need to understand the difference between what it truly means to be born again and a disciple of Christ and what it means to just say, we saw that last time, three or four times in the first chapter. If we say this and this doesn't match it, you're a liar. You're wrong. You're not true. And so he says, we have to, we have to distinguish that. And he says, so my little children, he says, I'm writing you these things so that you will not sin. You can't take my words and say, you know what? It's okay to sin. You can't do that. It's, it's sin is inevitable, but in the Christian heart, in the heart that's been changed by the Holy Spirit, it's never acceptable ever. There's no time when sin against the Holy God is acceptable because your heart has been changed. Your heart has been reborn. You're a new creature. God says, I'll, I'll put my words in your heart. I'll, I'll change that. Take that stony heart out and put in a heart of flesh that desires to keep my commandments. I'll cause you to walk in my statutes. I'll cause you to walk in my ways. Those are all promises of the new covenant. Are you making 100% yet? Of course not. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the desire of your heart. And all through John, what we're going to see, all through 1 John, is we're going to see these tests. We're going to look at one in just a minute. The test that he gives of authentic Christianity is not a test of how well you are doing. It's not about, are you doing good enough to be a Christian? It's about, is God doing what he promised he would do in the life of someone that he saves? He promised that he would change your heart so that you would hate sin and that you would love him. That's what he promised to do. And so if that's not going on in you, there's only one of two possibilities. John's going to show us this. There's only one of two possibilities. Either, number one, you're not a Christian and you think you are deceived. One of those people that will say, Lord, Lord, or God is just not trustworthy to keep his promises. And I hope you don't accept the second one, because if that's if it, if if a new heart that loves Christ and hates sin is something God can't do in a person, then I'm not so sure that he can give eternal life either. But understand that he can do both and he does do both and he's promised to do both. And there is no eternal life. There is no salvation without the Holy Spirit indwelling you and that new heart and new life uh, being rooted in you. And so he says, look, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. You will not be okay with sin. You will not say sin is acceptable ever. Not any sin. He said, and if any man does sin, we know that we live in the flesh. We have an advocate with the father. If you read that first line of the first verse, I'm writing these things that you don't sin. You might think, well, you just told me that no man's without sin. But now you're telling me I'm writing these things so that I don't sin. How can I possibly, how can I possibly stand before God and be righteous? How can I possibly stand and say, God, you, you, you said that I was a sinner and that if I said I'm not a sinner, I'm calling you a liar. But then again, you commanded me not to sin and you told me not to sin. How in the world can I stand at the judgment? How can I stand before you holy? The answer is given, us to, given to us in the gospel. He says, and if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. An advocate is it's, it's someone who stands in for us. He stands in the place of the judgment for us. He stands up. I mean, imagine, you just paint the picture. 
You walk into the courtroom of God. It's, it's your time, you know, the, it's, it's appointed a man wants to die and then you will face the judgment. That's what it says. It says when you walk into that judgment, let's just paint the picture out of my own mind. This is not this is not from the Bible. This is my imagination. I walk into the judgment. Here's the father. The ancient of days, Daniel calls him, sitting on his throne. Uh, I, I love this idea that so many people have about, well, I'm just going to go on and make my case. No, no. That's like making your case in, in, in front of a typhoon or something, a tsunami. You know, good luck with that. You're going to walk into the ancient of days. The glory of God's going to be there. Seraphim, holy, 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 the whole thing. You're going to stand in terrified awe. Everybody that stood before God in the scripture, everybody that saw the glory of the Lord were terrified. Everybody, even, even when Jesus was transfigured, these three men, Peter, James, and John, who had walked with him all this time, when Jesus was transfigured, was that they were terrified when, when, when just some angels showed up to say, Hey, everybody, Jesus is born. What were the shepherds doing? They was terrified. When Jesus, when they saw Jesus' power, when he stilled the, the, the storm in the boat, when they woke him up and said, look, we're perishing. You know, these guys were waking him up going, hey, come on, we're going to die. Well, don't you care? We're drowning. When he stood up and he calmed that store, storm, they were more afraid then than they were before. Because they were like, who is this guy that can control the, the wind and the waves? Isaiah chapter 6, he says, I'm undone. I'm coming apart at the seams. I'm a man of unclean lips. Everybody that stood before the glory of the Lord, terrified, absolutely terrified. And so who can stand? He says, when you when you stand before that judge, when you walk into that courtroom, you're going to have to have an advocate. You're going to have to have somebody to stand in for you, somebody to speak for you, somebody to tell the make the case for you. You're going to have to have an advocate. And there's only one. There's only one that's qualified to be your advocate. And he's qualified for two reasons. He's righteous. It says we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And the second is because he's a propitiation. We're going to see that in a second. He's righteous. He he lived the life that God expects you to live. He lived the life that's necessary for you to live to go to heaven. In order to be in order to be right with God, in order to be accepted into God's kingdom, in order to be accepted in God's presence, you have to be perfect. You have to be absolutely perfect, have never broken God's law even once. You can't just start from today. You can't start from today and walk out of here going, "Woo, I'm going to do better from now on. I mean, from this point on, I'm turning over a new leaf and I'm never going to sin again. If that was possible, even if it was possible, you still got to pay for all the stuff you done done. Now, if you come in here today and you haven't sinned at all in your life, you know, then we can have a talk. But, you know, uh, raise your hand if you had never sinned. OK, well, then you can't just turn over a new leaf today. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to start over and, and, and we're going to get this thing right. No, you're going to have to pay for all that you've done before. You're going to have to pay for everything. And so to stand before him and be accepted in the pre- into his presence, you're going to have to be absolutely perfect. And there was only one. There's only one who's done that. Only one who's done that. It was God himself. When he came in the incarnation, he was born of a virgin. He lived perfectly, never broke God's law, never sinned. He lived the life that you must live in order to be accepted. So in order for him, in order for him to be, in order for you to have an advocate, you're going to have to have one that's absolutely perfect because you can't have me as your advocate. Because when I stand before God, I'm going to have just as much, if not more sin than you are. 
You can't have Joe down the road to be an advocate. You can't have Muhammad or Buddha to be your advocate. You can't have any advocate like that because those men weren't sinless. They were just men. You have to have the son of God, the son of man, the Messiah that Daniel prophesied about coming to the ancient of days who receives the throne and the kingdom, never sinned, never broke God's law, always perfect, righteous from the time that he was born in Bethlehem to the time that he was crucified and and raised from the dead. He was absolutely righteous. You have to have a perfect advocate. Nothing. No one perfect will stand. No one unperfect, imperfect will do. And so Jesus is the only one qualified to be your advocate. He's the only one that's righteous. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so it's not just about getting your sins washed away. That's the big part. We're going to talk about that on propitiation. It's not just about that, though. You you can't just say, well, I got my sins washed away, therefore I'm a clean slate. No, you have to have righteousness. You have to have been righteous. Righteous, And so Jesus takes his life, his perfection, his righteousness that he lived, and he gives that righteousness to you. He imputes it to you. He puts it on your account. I've used the books before. If I took two hymnals, I I said, this is the book of your life with all your stuff in it. This is the book of Jesus' life with all his stuff in it. He replaces your book with his. And so when he is your advocate, he's not just pleading your case. He's not just your lawyer. He's the one that gives you his righteousness so that you can stand before God and be righteous. Not just stand before God and say, you know what, I I did pretty good. I was better than so-and-so down the road. I did whatever. But God, the Father, the Ancient of Days, the Judge of all the earth would look and say, this is my beloved. He would look at you and say, this is my beloved son, my beloved daughter. In, In them, I am well pleased. Not because of what you did. If you stand there in your own stuff, good luck. It's going to be a whirlwind. It's going to be a a tornado. It's going to be a tsunami. You're not going to be able to make your case. You're not going to be able to utter a word. You're not going to be able to, to, to work the system or anything like that. You're not going to be able to do that. God knows the intention of the heart. He knows everything from the, from the end to the, from the beginning to the end. He knows every thought that you've ever had. You're not going to be able to convince him. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to talk your way out of it. You're going to have to have a perfect advocate. You're going to have to have a a one who stands not just for you, but in your place as the righteous one. He's also in verse three, it says he's the propitiation for your sins. A big old word. Propitiation means he appeased the wrath of God. That means his sacrifice was acceptable to God. I mean, it's, it's, it's a big word, but it's a simple concept. You know it. It's the gospel. It means that when he died, not only does he give you his righteousness, but he pays for all your sin. So he takes all, think of it this way. He takes all your sin away, all your, all your wretchedness, all your ugliness, all your, all your, the things that you've done against God, the things that you've thought against God, the things that were just, uh, unintentional sins and intentional sins, the things past, present, and future. He takes all those things and he takes the wrath and justice of God for those. And he gives you his perfect righteousness. So when he takes on the cross, he was, he was not just killed by the Romans. He was not just uh, crucified by the Romans and by, and by the Jews. And, and now, of course, he was. But he was taking the wrath of the Father. Uh, Isaiah 53 says it was the Father's pleasure to crush him. He took your sins. He bore on his back your iniquities. And by his stripes, 
you are healed. And so he took all our sin. That propitiation means there is no more wrath in God for you. There's no more wrath. You know, there's times when you do something really stupid. Times when you sin. Times when, you know, um, there just are. And you, can, you and I can understand why we don't make light of sin. We don't accept sin. We don't say, well, it's okay. We don't make excuses for it. You can't. Not if you believe that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. That was in chapter one. You can't make light of it. But we understand that Christ has given us perfect righteousness and there is no more wrath for us in God because of what he did. There's no more wrath. There's no more justice. There's no more punishment. There is no more. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. There's no more condemnation. And so as a believer, a person who is in Christ, when you and I stand before God, there is never, think about it. I mean, this is, this is a bold statement right here, but there is never going to be a time in all eternity where you and I are going to be punished for our sin. That's amazing. Now, you'll be disciplined. You'll be chastised. You'll be, uh, you do something stupid. God's not a, he's a good shepherd. He's a good father. He's not going to let you run off in the interstate and play. He, he, he's going to be one that comes and corrects. But we're just talking about justice, punishment in a legal sense. That has been paid for at the cross. He is the propitiation for our sins. And it says, and not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world. His, I mean, think about this. One sacrifice, one perfect Man's sacrifice, God and man together, is enough for the whole world to be saved. Is enough for, I mean, just my sins, it's like, I mean, you you may have to have something extra (laughs) to get all my sins taken care of. But it, it wasn't because, it wasn't because he suffered more than, I mean, he did suffer more than anybody else. But it was because of how perfect he was. I mean, his sacrifice was so pure, so perfect. His being, he was God himself. And that is enough. That one sacrifice that took uh, two or three days. It took, one, uh, it took a day to die, three days in the grave, risen from the grave. That, that one period of time in history, that one God man who sacrificed himself to take the wrath of God, took the wrath of God, and it is enough. It's enough of a sacrifice, enough of a propitiation to remove the wrath of God from the entire world. I don't know how many people's in the world. It's what, six, seven billion? Enough. It, it's, it's sufficient. Let's put it that way. It's sufficient to take away the sin and the wrath of God over the entire world. It's that powerful. And so as believers, sometimes we'll see this in John as, he, as we move along in the book. Sometimes we're like, God, how could God forgive me for that? How could God forgive me? For, man, I have messed up so bad. How could God, <laughs> six billion people, seven billion people. And I'm asking, how could God forgive me? That's making his sacrifice look real small, isn't it? But the thing that we need to say, I don't know how much time I got left. I probably ain't got much. I'm going to go into the next verses next time. But let me show you this last thing in in verse 3. It's enough for the whole world, but the whole world's not going to take part in it. Only those who come and trust Him. 
Only those who come give their life to Him. Only those who come and repent of their sin and accept the gift of this sacrifice. The whole, it's enough for the whole world. But the whole world's not going to receive you. It says, verse 3 says, 3, 4, and 5, we'll look at in depth next week. But hopefully, if, if the Holy Spirit doesn't change my mind. But he says, it's not for our sins only, but it's for the whole world. But the whole world is not, not taking part in this. Because they refuse. They refuse to come to know this Christ. They refuse to come and be saved. They refuse to come and give their lives. And so in verse 3, 4, and 5, he's going to give us a test. Another test. He's going to say, look, there's a lot of people out there that refuse to come to know Christ. He, he's, paid enough, he's paid enough for the world. He's, he, he's laid the bank account down so that they can come anytime they get ready. But it's a lot of people that are not not taking part of this. There's some people that are saying they're taking part, but they're not because they refuse to trust in him. They refuse to, they refuse to surrender their life to this sacrifice. And these next three verses, he's going to give us the test. And this is the first one. I'm just going to read it real quick. And then we're going to talk about it a second. And then we'll go. And then we're going to look at it in depth next week. But he says, hereby, we do know that we know him. Now, remember in first John, when we started at the very beginning, he, he defined salvation as knowing God. He defined it as fellowship with God. We know that we have fellowship with him and our fellowship is with God. And if you, you can have fellowship with us, that's what John said. He defines salvation as fellowship with God. Peaceful fellowship with God. No more wrath, no more punishment, no more judgment. It, we have been reconciled to the Father. He says, this is how we know that we know him. This is how you can be assured that you know him. If we keep his commandments. Now that is, it's a short little verse, but it's so profound. He's going to reiterate it two or three times in, in verses four and five. And we, don't, we won't have time for that today, but understand what he's saying. He's saying, he, if we sin, we have an advocate with the father. And that advocate is righteous. That advocate is a propitiation for your sin. Not just for your sin, but the sins of the world. He is, a, he is an abundant advocate. He's abundant propitiation. He's, he's given enough to save the entire planet. But this is how we know that we've come to know him. Is that we keep his commandments. We walk in after his ways. And what it says here is, this is how we know that we, it's in the perfect tense, it's, we have come to know him once for all. It's talking about uh, a once for all salvation that has abiding results in the present. It's talking about having come to know him in a once for all sense, but still walking in that knowledge of him. If we are keeping ongoing practice, his commandments, does it mean perfection? This is how you know that you know him. If you're absolutely perfect and you hadn't broken any commandments, that's not what it says. That's not what it means. What it means is that you are living a lifestyle. It's in present tense, which is a a continuous aspect, habitual lifestyle. You are living a life that keeps his commandments. We talked about a little last week. 
I could probably take a picture of you out in the world somewhere, Walmart, whatever. I could probably catch you doing something stupid. And I could hang that picture. I could hang that picture on the screen here and everybody would be like, oh, that can't be a Christian. I could probably catch you in that. You could probably catch. I'm sure you could catch me in that. We're not talking about a snapshot. We're talking about the movie of your life. The movie of your life. It, it is consistently described by keeping the commandments of God. It is a person who is walking after the commandments of, the God, of God. Do they step off the path sometimes? Yes, he comes get you. Do they step off and, and do something stupid? Yes, he's going to come discipline his children. But if you looked at the movie of your life from the time that you were born again until today and until the time you die, those who have eternal life are walking after the commandments of God. They are keeping the commandments of God. I think it was, uh, remember who it was. It was a preacher. I don't remember who it was, but he, he used this analogy. He, he said there was a, used to be a way, it used to be a term that sailors used back when they didn't have instruments and stuff. And it said, he said, they called it keeping to the stars. And they would use these instruments that would look at the stars. And I don't know how they work, but that's how they would map how they were going on the ocean. And they called it keeping to the stars. And, and, and they would find a star wherever they were going. I don't know how it works, but you know what I'm talking about. And they would map their direction. And then they would just watch that star. They would watch that, that, that point. And the ship would move, the wind would blow, storms would come, and it would push them off the deal. It would, it would move them off course. They would go to sleep at night in the bottom of the boat, wake up in the, in the next morning, and it would be a little off course. And they would have to pull back to that star. They would have to pull back to that direction. That's the idea of a believer that keeps God's commandments. There are times when you're going to get pushed off course. There are times when you're going to step off course. There are times when you do dumb things where you sin against God, but always God is going to convict that heart. The Holy Spirit inside of you is going to convict you and he's going to to press you and discipline you and chastise you so that you pull back to that star and you refocus to that point and you walk after his commandments. If that is not true, hereby we know it is true, but let's just say if it's not true, hereby we know that we know him. This is how we know. This is the test by which we know we know him. This is the test by which we know we have fellowship with him if we keep his commandments. If that's not true, if, if, if you walk out of here and you go, well, that, he, he, he might be just putting that bar a little too high. I just don't know. If that's not true, then you don't have no justification for believing John 3.16 either. Because it's all in the same book. In fact, John 3.16 was written by the same guy that this was, this was written by. And so... The Holy Spirit wrote it, but you know what I mean? It was the same author. If you don't have, if, if you can say, if you're a person like the, the people to whom John's writing, if you're a person that can say, I, I believe in John 3.16, but this whole deal about God changing my heart and making me walk after his commandments, I mean, that, I, I mean, I, I, I just don't, I, I don't follow that. Understand the two things go together. Eternal life means that you've been sealed to the day of redemption. You have an inheritance that's incorruptible, can't be defiled, can't whatever. You know, the rest of what Peter says. It's, it cannot fade away, reserved in heavens for you. But it also means that you have a new heart. It also means that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It also means that God lives inside of you and God is the one that's directing that heart. God is the one that's making war against that flesh that you still have. 
and God is conforming you to the image of His Son. That's what Romans 8 says. We are being conformed to the image of His Son. Is it possible? Is it possible for God to save a person and not cause him to walk after His commands? Is it possible for God to save a person and not be conforming him to the image of his son? According to scripture, it's not possible. And so today, you and I have an advocate. And it's not just for you and I. Boy, he's enough for the whole world. Propitiation for the whole world. He's powerful enough. He is is perfect enough. He was the perfect sacrifice. Jesus Christ is absolutely enough to provide you with eternal life, to give you righteousness that will never fade away, that will be a billion years from now. You'll be just as righteous in God's sight as you are today, right this second. He's enough. But when he saves you, he doesn't leave you the way that you are. He changes you from the inside. And John is going to use this. He's going to use this to, to show us a test. Uh, you know, I, in, a, in a pool, you stick a thing in there and it'll tell you it's got too much of this, it's got not enough of that, chemical, whatever. John has given us this test. He gave us the picture of the perfect advocate, the perfect propitiation. The, what, I mean, what, what beautiful words it is to the sinner who says, who, who can say, if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. There's no better news than that. There's no greater news than that. But in 3, 4, and 5, let me just read them and we'll go. He says, he says, and hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him. Here we are again. He that says. We're talking about somebody who says. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is what? He's a liar. I'm sorry, I didn't call you a liar. The one who says that I know Jesus and is not walking in Jesus' commandments is a liar. And he's a liar because the truth is not in him. It's the truth in him that makes him walk after those commandments. And then five, we'll go, it says... Who, but whoso, whoso keepeth his word, that's follow his commandments, same thing, keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby, he ends the section the same way he started, hereby know we that we are in him. This is how we know that we are in him. Understand what he's saying. He's not saying... If you walk out of those doors today and you think, man, Jason was right. John was right when he wrote that. I got to do better. You missed the point. That's not what he said. He's not saying go do better. He's saying whoso keepeth his word. Why is he keeping his word? Because in him, the love of God has been perfected. The love of God having been perfected in you is what causes you to keep his word. You can't go keep his word and say, you can't go say, well, I'm going to go keep his word and think that somehow that's going to perfect the love of God in you. It's backwards. The love of God has to be perfected in you. It has to be completed in you for you to keep his word. What he's talking about, this is, this is how you know. This is how you know whether you're a believer or not. Take these tests for yourself. Examine yourself today. Understand he's not saying go do better. That, I mean, we all need to go, I need to go do better. 
<clears throat> you need to go do better. He's not, that's not the test. Go and do better is not the test. <clears throat> it's not going to be through the whole book if we get to go through the whole book. It's not going to... Never does he say, go and do better and you're going to be fine. Ever. He always says, this is the test. Look at the way that you walk. <clears throat> the one who walks after God's commands is the one who has been perfected on the inside. So if you're not walking today, the the examination is simple as we close. You're living a life that's not walking after God's commands. I'm not talking about perfection. If you're living a life that's not walking after God's command, the question you need to ask is not, do I need to do better? It's how can I trust a God that evidently hadn't kept his promise? But the reality is that God always keeps his promise. And so your two choices are God doesn't keep his promises or I'm not one of his own. He's given a propitiation that's going to be enough. Not, it's going to be abundantly enough for you. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, it's abundantly enough for 7 billion people. Or how many ever people's on earth? I don't know how many people. It's abundantly enough for all the people who ever lived before this generation. It's abundantly enough. He says, but this is how you know that you know him if you walk after his commands. That's the test. Somebody sees your life and they're saying, man, that guy, that girl, she is, they're walking after God's commands. They're walking after God's word. They love Christ. It's as simple as that. This is how we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Father, we love you and we come before you today and thank you for your word. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for these tests that you've given us in your word in 1 John. Thank you for just giving us the assurance, God, that even, even, even though we know that, uh, that if we sin, we have an advocate. We know that, uh, that the spirit inside of us, if we've been born again, is one that's going to call.